was in late December of my 21st year, and I found my pockets bare enough to once more seek employ by way of the Atlantic Ocean, doing whatever simple work a man with high spirits and low ambition would provide a ship's captain. This expedition would reveal itself to be a cursed endeavor from the first breath, and soon would find ourselves adrift in near-frozen waters, a sea of fog engulfing our entire world. For days that limped along endlessly, we struggled to ease the boredom by staring off into the mist, straining our eyes for the slightest break in the white hell stretching before us. On what could have been the ten thousandth day, we saw it at last, the slightest of shimmers dead ahead, and it was growing larger, brighter, and we were headed straight for that horrible, beautiful light, and in our madness we thanked God for delivering us into his grace. Little did my crewmates suspect we had been delivered instead to the gaping maw of the manscape. When the light that had overtaken us subsided, we opened our eyes to sight ever more miraculous. Dry land. We set sail for the island now before us, not far from swimming distance away, too desperate for the feel of grass beneath our feet to notice how strangely red the skies now looked. How still the water seemed despite our steady progress through it. Once we reached land, the miracles did not cease. Littered on the grass were countless wooden crates, filled with the most strange and miraculous wares we had ever laid eyes upon. Whether these belonged to another doomed crew or to the island itself, I will never know. But I am resolute in my certainty that the items were not of this age, or perhaps even the sphere of the cosmos. First, there were the boxer briefs, black as night and as comfortable as a glove, gently holding the curve of our nethers in ways the lovers we had left at home never could. Then there were the crates marked Crop Preserver, which contained a wonderful ointments which cured us of the chafing that had long been a sailor's greatest misery. Then there were the twin oddities that were the weed whacker and lawn mower, vibrating wands which effortlessly removed the hair from our noses and unmentionables, respectively. And the most curious of all were the shirts, all emblazoned with a single, enigmatic word, Manscaped. By the time anyone had noticed the ship had vanished, our hair had already begun to grow at a rate we, in another life, would have found troubling. But the compulsion to shave, to style, to clothe oneself in form, fitting underwear, it conquered our minds in a bloodless coup, and all it asked in return for its gifts was that we stay in this manscape forever, shaving forever, a crew of stylish men trapped in a realm of perpetual grooming. I share this story not as a warning, but as an act of obedience to a new 
God I both fear and love, the one who has manscaped my soul and speaks now through me to deliver a message to those who seek its bounties. Venture to manscaped.com and use offer code BOXOFFICEPULP, all one word, to get 20% off your order plus free shipping. I will repeat this once more. Manscaped.com. Offer code box office pulp. Your balls will thank you. Here's Johnny. I'll be back. And you will know my name is the Lord. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Groovy. Welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, and moxie. I'm your host, Cody, and tonight we're celebrating Thanksgiving with an episode all about food, horror, and the menu. Uh, joining me are my co-hosts Mike and Jamie, plus special guest Spooky Sarah Says from Geeks Who Eat and uh, the Final Girls Feast podcast. Hello. Oh, hello. Thank you so much for joining us. This is, uh, I would, I would call Mike, Jamie, and myself, uh, food criminals. Like we belong in some sort of tribunal somewhere. So it's important to have someone here who actually knows something about food. food. <laughs> I mean, I'm from the South. So like legally, you probably can persecute me for some kind of food related crime. You put hot I mean, sauce on what? I mean, I look at it this way though, because like food, yes, fancy food is fun, but like I am very much down with eating a bag of pizza rolls and drinking a diet pepsi like you know <laughs> i i i feel like i can i can go the the range of it all i'm not like gordon ramsay who can't even so much look at a slice of pizza without like cringing like i i like it all and i think there's room i think there's room on the table as it were for you know a little bit of everything i, I would like to say as the resident italian that pizza rolls are perfectly acceptable and delicious. <laughs> okay, good. I'm glad I'm tiny glad calzones. <laughs> you know, I've never thought of them that way. And now if That's anybody incredible. ever if anyone ever gives me crap about that again, I'm gonna be like, they are just mini calzones. <laughs> I'm sorry you're not invited to my tour of Italy in my kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but I'm I'm gonna actually I'm gonna test uh your ability to not judge us common food folk today to get in the mood for this podcast i i splurged and i got candy corn and pumpkin brats and that was my dinner Ooh, just you took okay, the pumpkin brats pumpkin brats i'm on board with but candy corn not so much <laughs> I, I i think if i'm gonna eat waxy halloween candy i'm gonna go with pumpkin mallow creams i think they have a better honey flavor than candy corn does <laughs> but how does that pair with the brat I mean, I, I'm sure that they've done it on Chopped. <laughs> but yeah, these were uh, the Spooktoberfest brats were a huge deal at my uh, local deli last year. They kind of went viral for them. I bought a couple this year and had them sitting in my freezer. Didn't make them in time for Halloween. I figured now was the perfect time to bring out these uh, sausage abominations. So if I if I pass away halfway through this recording, just assume it was the brats. You will. I still stand by the pumpkin brats. I think I always enjoy like pumpkin with like a like a hearty meat like that. It tends to pair pretty well. 
the candy corn. So it was literally just candy corn mixed in with the broads. There's there's chunks of candy corn oh. mixed in with this broad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but just, yeah, just no, small pieces and it melts in. <laughs> You know, I made up for it though. I, uh, we had me and my husband celebrated our anniversary this past weekend, and we we went out to a fancy restaurant for the first time since COVID. Like we haven't done this in like years, and we we treated ourselves and we had foie gras, and it was so good. <laughs> and it was like the tiniest little piece of foie gras that I've probably ever seen, but <laughs> it was just so delicious. And the ribeye I had, ooh, it was heaven. So I, I think really I made up for it. I, <laughs> I, I think I, uh, I think I made up for your candy corn this, abomination. Yeah, that probably balances. Uh, and I should say the side was a uh, leftover sweet potatoes that have been sitting around my fridge for like a week. So, you know, just prime <laughs> for this whole situation. So you may die by the end of this podcast. Like we, That's this may very, be the last recording. This is my last hurrah. Uh, but I'm glad I get to talk about a movie I really enjoyed before I go. So the menu recently came out. Uh, I was lucky enough to actually have it in my theater. So I ran to it right away and I was just knocked down. Uh, I was hoping for good things, didn't know a lot going in, but absolutely loved everything it was doing. It's funny. Uh, it's it's twisty without feeling like it's overly contrived. Man, uh, the performances are, are so good. I just don't have a single bad thing to say about this movie. Yeah, I, I'm with you. And I, I'm obsessed with gastro horror. So like this for me, I have, this has been my most anticipated horror movie of the year with maybe the exception of scare package two. And <laughs> because I, if y'all don't know, I am the fan club of, or I am the fan club president of the scare club, scare package fan club. I can't even say it all. We're, um, we're always down for more rad chat around here. So heck yeah, <laughs> definitely on your side. So I've been looking forward to this movie. I had avoided all trailers. I just knew that it was restaurant, you know, gastro horror. And I was like on board and then come to find out that they had Dominique Crenn on set as like, you know, to help cons be like a consultant. And she's a, the only American woman to have a three-star Michelin restaurant. Oh, so they had her and then their second, um, oh, I can't even think of the, it's like the second camera, the second unit. That's it. Mm -hmm. The second unit was actually the director of photography there was Chloe Weaver, who, um, was the second unit director on chef's table. Oh, so nice. <laughs> all of the food looks beautiful, like legitimately, like because they had real talent, food talent on set to do it so from a food standpoint i was i was just floored it's, and then anya taylor the, joy oh yeah but it's it is really some of the prettiest food i've seen in a movie since well i guess it wasn't a movie but uh hannibal the tv show yeah i never really thought they're going to be able to top those things but boy i would really like some of that no bread bread <laughs> <laughs> we we recreated um memory and the uh, palate cleansing tea on geeks who eat Oh, I saw so that. Those, it looked amazing. Those recipes are up now. And like Searchlight actually did help us out a little bit. They were, they were my rep here in town uh, for like the local screenings. He was in touch with Searchlight. And so he, he was, you know, asking them like, can I get like, you know, screenshots of the food so that they can recreate this. And they sent us like a copy of the menu that was used in the film so that we could have it for staging. And it, oh, it was just so cool. cool. Yeah. And 
So I, 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 this movie really holds like a special place in my heart because like not only did, you know, it have to do with like what I'm passionate about with gastro horror, but like the studio actually like was encouraging and helpful of our recipes. So out of curiosity on that menu, I remember it being in the theater trying to read it really quickly, but they don't show it very long. Does it actually include all the dishes that were in the film? So I, I was wondering there, there's like the part where like, you know, Tyler screws up. I, I was wondering so that was said it was, I don't, I, we're, we're good with language on this show. I just want to oh, yeah. be clear. Okay. Like, so Tyler's was... Tyler's bullshit is not on the menu, nor is Bryce's birthday cake. And then okay. the supplemental cheeseburger course is also not on there. But what's interesting is what is on there is a thing called cleaning your plate, which was supposed to be a various preparations of peanuts Roasted candied praline paste, brittle, and caramelized sugar, and those are never in the movie. So Ooh. it's hmm. and I found the screen like because I was also sent a screener before the press conference. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I was like pausing it to look at the menu because this is what I do. I'm that <laughs> I'm that insane. Um, and the cleaning your plate is actually on Anya Taylor Joy's menu when she wipes her mouth with it. Yeah. Okay. And so this, this, the one I have is legitimately the one that is used in the film. Like, not like I don't have a movie used copy, but I have the PDF of what was printed for the film, I should say. Right. Yeah. You have the Canon menu. I do have the <laughs> Canon menu. <laughs> I really, so my experience in the theater, I was surprised. I went there uh, on Saturday and it was about 75% full, which I wasn't expecting unless it's, you know, it's something like a superhero film. I don't expect my theater to sell out of movies. So that was a bright surprise. But even better, the audience, as the movie went on, got more and more into it. And then when we get to the interstitials basically showing what's on the menu, by the end, they were just, you know, losing their shit each time one of those popped up. Like, you see, you know, Tyler's bullshit. So I, I loved how the <laughs> audience kind of warmed up to the entire thing as it went along. Like, they weren't sure. They were a little steady. But by the end, they were totally eating it. Yeah, it, it, it was, I went to a screen, I was at a press screening. So my screening, my first screening was very small, but everybody loved it. Like there was not, I think there might have been one person who reviewed it that didn't love it. And then he was immediately turned into a giant s'more. I mean, I judged him. <laughs> they are wrong. This is, this like, is our next point of contention though. Where do you land on s'mores? I think s'mores are delicious, but they are definitely messier than they are worth most of the time. Absolutely. Yes. Like, they're delicious. It's like crawfish, not worth the, re- not worth the trouble. Exactly. Amen. Amen. <laughs> but they did, they did give us a s'mores kit, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> so, now I, so now I can actually make s'mores in my house and then kill everybody for being judgmental and... <laughs> destroying my art (laughs) the dream oh man so i thought i thought i was so smart walking into the menu i was trying to brainstorm different horror films that really focused on food and i was like oh wow it is really class-based isn't it thinking of the texas chainsaw massacre and how that's more like eating for survival and then you have stuff like hannibal where it's exotic eating or something like fresh where it's rich guys paying for human flesh because why not and then i get into the menu and it's like no we've got the class stuff covered don't worry about it and uh boy really uh, stole my thunder when someone said it way more eloquently than I ever could in that film. Yeah, I would say that gastro horror does have a lot to do with classism. I mean, you also have cadaver, which is, I think it's Icelandic or Norwegian, which is another cannibalism film where the rich are eating the poor. And 
Um, but I think like also like you have a lot of, you know, you have a lot of that because of with, especially with cannibalism, because cannibalism is always kind of viewed as, you know, gosh, I, I'm looking for the word to like put it, but it's always like the others. It's yeah. always some sort of others. Like, so you're always looking down on these, like, cause it's usually like hillbillies or like, you know, and like, it's kind of switched cause it used to be like, you know, with like, um, I don't know if y'all have seen Joe Bob's, like how the rednecks saved Hollywood, but he actually oh, yeah. talks about how, you know, how like the hillbillies, it's always like the northerners looking down on them. And then they, they go where they shouldn't be and put their foot where they shouldn't. And then, you know, meet their demise as it were. And so it's kind of flipped like more in recent years where it's now the rich eating the poor to, you know, for whatever like reason, but it's, it's interesting to see that class dynamic like flip. Mm -hmm. And then of course, like we can always get into the white savior complex of, you know, jungle cannibalism and, you know, all of that Italian cannibalism and all that, but that is not what we are here to do. It might not I even mean, be a smart idea to talk about cannibalism in this one at all, considering, you know, menu is pretty I actually, you know, that was, I, I love this movie and it's, it's tied easily for my favorite movie of the year with fresh. Um, but I was a little bit disappointed that there wasn't cannibalism in it. If I was, if I'm going to be honest, I feel that I was, way about every film. <laughs> I was really, I was like really hoping that there would be like, even just like a small amount, like maybe not like the whole movie, but I did, I did kind of wish that there would have been some cannibalism in it. I just assumed there was going to be some as a, just a matter of business. Or, I kind of thought they were going to cook Tyler at some point. Yeah, when Tyler takes off his tie, I thought, oh, that's it. He's going to hop right in the oven. He's going to be the next course. And uh, surprise, I was overthinking it. <laughs> it. It is interesting to me with with when it comes to cannibalism from the way it's flipped. But even when it was just hillbillies or hills have eyes and stuff like that, it still comes it it always comes from a place of the ones who are con consuming the other people are coming at it from a place of superiority even when it's northerners invading you know uh the ozarks or something like that it's it's still they think they're superior but in fact they are inferior in comparison to those who are attempting to consume them yeah, like it always kind of comes back to the same basic idea. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Yeah, well, it's stuff like, especially with stuff like uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I, I think that that like plays into a lot of fears that like 20th century America had over its own domestication. Like that whole like deliverance thing of like, oh, I may be a captain of industry with a good education who can totally handle himself in the big city, but the second I step into you know, a more primitive setting, suddenly I'm not the alpha male anymore. Suddenly the things that I thought mattered and made me strong mean nothing because there's this actual predator out here. I, I have, I will say that I, in all of my gastro horror love, I really do love backwoods cannibalism movies. Like that is kind of like, I really just in that is that in terms of the cannibalism film genre, that is the type that I typically kind of gravitate towards, though most of them are terrible. <laughs> Would you say that's your favorite flavor? I'll see myself. Uh, oh, oh, I couldn't help myself. I had to get in. I almost made uh, that pun, and then I thought, no, 
Cody's got this one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I do, I do really love Fresh though. I, I love the commentary in Fresh, and I think the menu does a good job with that as well. Like they did a, they did a really excellent job. Not making like I feel like where this movie really succeeded is that it was very heavy on the commentary, but oh, it sure. didn't beat you over the head with it. Like it, it didn't like make a, you know like it didn't make a statement and then wink at the camera. Right. Well, and, and which, I think which a it really sells. Do. Oh, sure. I, I think it really sells because uh, uh, Ray Fiennes is is such a kind of layered character in this. It's not necessarily that he is one hundred percent evil, so you don't have to listen to his points. Or he is so, so right about everything that it feels like he's preaching. You, you get the sense this guy is clearly flawed, but maybe isn't totally wrong about a lot of the things he's saying. That is that is my hot take. Is I actually think that uh, Julian Slowick is the anti-hero of the film. He's not a good guy, but he's not he's not the antagonist at all. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't think he's at all the antagonist. I think he is an antihero who has made some really shitty choices. Like, you know, and he, but what I, I find interesting about him is that he acknowledges those choices and then seeks to kind of destroy the culture that, you know, pushed him towards those things. Right. And we see that he's not a hypocrite a lot of times because he's pretty open. Everyone's going to die tonight. And he... You know, isn't screwing around. He isn't lying to them about that. He expects everyone to die till the, the very end when he changes his mind. Uh, there's the moment where he picks up uh, the the burning rock because he talks about how like a seasoned chef can do that kind of thing. So he, he kind of puts his money where his mouth is a lot of times in his actions. And I think that endures him to you when you know, OK, well, he believes what he's saying. He's not just full of hot air. or He's not just trying to protect his own feelings. Yeah. And then like when there is the discussion that he has with the female chef. And she says, you know, like, he tried to have sex with me several times. And, you know, I stayed because he's the man and he's the boss. And then he apologizes to her. And it doesn't, in that moment, it doesn't, like, feel like he doesn't mean it. Right. Like, it it feels like he's, he's, you know, legitimately, you know apologetic for what he did. And he, he lets her stab him. I mean, come on. Like... Well, and he's kind of publicly flogging himself for it, too. He wants all these awful people to know he's kind of awful, too. He calls himself a monster later on, and we can see why. So yeah, it, like, it's not like he's trying to squirm his way out of this. He's taking it, you know, front on. Yeah, for someone who's always seeked perfection to show publicly that he's not perfect, I think kind of indicates that he is, you know, aware and apologetic for what he did. Yeah. And then we find out that it was her idea to kill everyone anyway. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, so, so he's, he's listening to her. He's learning, although he still abuses power in the first place. Truth. One thing, and I might be overthinking this, but I love how that whole section tied into the menu. Uh, because we have them serving, uh, I believe it's a, a blackened chicken breast with the scissors stabbed into it. Or it's not a breast. Is it, is it a breast or a thigh? It's a chicken thigh. And that it's was a actually. Thigh, which connects right into actually, being stabbed in the it's thigh. It's actually two courses prior. Yeah. But he would have had that planned since it's part of the menu later on for him to do that exhibition. Mm. So I, I kind of associate all that. Plus, there's the moment where he talks about stabbing his own father in the leg. That's so, when that's when they serve the chicken. Right. And so then, you get all those things kind of, in my mind, blended together into one statement he's trying to make about man's folly. Mm-hmm. So basically what happens is he has memory. Then they do the mess where the sous chef, you know, shoots himself in the head. 
and then they do man's folly. So they kind of do this like, you know, storytelling of like, kind of like his upbringing. Yeah. As it were like, and his rise. And then we later find out that, you know, he had a family and he basically gave up his family for this career and for this job to serve people who don't appreciate him and won't appreciate the sacrifice that he has made because most people don't know or care. Right. Yeah. Even, even though it's what, 12,000 a night or something they said for a single person. 1250 ahead, I think yeah. is what he said. And then that one guy, he's like, tell me one thing you ate the last time you were here. You've been here 11 times and he couldn't do it. Yeah. I guess the fish wrong. Even his wife doesn't even really pay attention. Yeah. So it's, it's an, it's an interesting like movie. And like, I, I think that, you know, when you look at it, especially like I, I used to do restaurant coverage with my website. And so like, I know a lot of chefs and I know a lot of people in the food and service industry. And I love seeing their reactions to this movie because they are the ones who are like, yeah, absolutely. That was an amazing movie. Like, hell yeah. So I could, I could be totally off base here because I picked it up from the internet, but I, I saw someone make a TikTok describing that each course of the menu uh, is kind of patterned after a different uh, Michelin-starred restaurant. I don't know how true that is or if you would know anything along those lines, but I was very curious to see if they were trying to <laughs> maybe parody I mean, or, or play given, on specific restaurants. Given that Dominique Crenn was there for consultation, I wouldn't be surprised if there was there were nods to certain restaurants or chefs or, you know, whatnot. Like, I, I, I would absolutely believe that. I, but I haven't seen, and it wasn't told to anyone officially, I don't think, in any capacity that it was. Right. <laughs> and uh, hopefully none of the characters look a little too close to real life people. Like the uh, magazine <laughs> editor hopefully doesn't look like anyone real. <laughs> well, uh, John Leguizamo said that he modeled his character after Steven Seagal. Because Steven Seagal was a jerk to him on set. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. And it, it so, sense. so he said that that was who he uh, modeled that character after. <laughs> well, Leguizamo has that moment towards the beginning where he's like, hey, guys, I was in this action movie and we got we to gotta fight him. And it seems like a very Seagal thing to try and make those claims that you're a real life type tough guy, but then not actually do anything. Exactly. <laughs> I love that point in the movie as well, where... Fines basically says, you guys probably could have escaped. Like, you could have overpowered us. It's it's weird you didn't try harder. <laughs> Which I, I think well, there's a lot of commentary there about the type of people that you would put in the situation. Yeah, and um, actually, Mark Mylod did, that's the director, he actually, to get the, the cast in that mindset, he gave them homework to watch The Exterminating Angel. Right. Which is, I think, like a 1962 film. And it's basically an upper class group of people who get stuck in a like in somebody's like living room. It's the worst dinner party. Uh, yeah. It's one of those movies that I think you only really need to see once. <laughs> it just made me so uncomfortable. Like, this was good. I, I'm, I'm, I had enough. I actually want to watch it again. I just recently watched it for the first time. And I was like, you know, I think I need to see this again. Like <laughs> now knowing what's happened and then reading more about like context, mm -hmm. I want to watch it again. Not necessarily right away, but I do, I do think it was interesting enough that I, I, I did go buy it during the Criterion sale. So, I mean, it, it would make a really good companion piece to this. Yeah, I think it would be a really interesting like double feature. And then I know a lot of other people have said it, but uh, 
I think if everyone's saying it's probably true. Midsummer, a lot of vibes from that. You could probably pair these two movies together pretty easily. Yeah. One from the I cult would... vibes and two for the big old fiery explosion at the end. Yeah. I would I would say it definitely has a similar tone. I keep going to Snowpiercer. I don't know why. Like for some reason there's something about like that certain broad type of dark comedy matched with the class warfare thing going on that I don't know, it feels very Snowpiercer, like it's very same world almost. Well you get uh high and low food, I think, in that comparison, right? Because this movie's obviously like the super fine cuisine and yeah. <laughs> Snowpiercer it's like the gelatinous blobs of people. <laughs> They were grasshoppers. Oh, grasshoppers. Okay. I, oh, I was mixing up uh, the story he talks about uh, eating a baby in that movie. <laughs> yeah, the baby was delicious, though. Um, <laughs> it's something that did really resonate with me, though, with the with the menu is outside of the the class the classist stuff is the film is is commenting on so many different things at once, utilizing that as kind of like the base wraparound. But what what interested me was Slowick's his the self-loathing and his is thrust towards authenticity and kind of honesty. And that's where you get him throwing out, like you all could have overpowered us at any point. And it's, it's saying it without, it's as close as the film gets to saying like, you all hate yourselves. You all know you're horrible people and you absolutely despise it. You all want to die. Like you, you all have accepted this and you haven't gotten up from your table. And like that's something that truly troubles him is he's gotten so far away from the authenticity of what he was and the authenticity of what servers are versus what this higher class is, which isn't accepting that that self-hatred, that self-awareness. I was I was really thinking of Slowick as basically the foodie version of John Kramer from Saw. Yes. <laughs> I would actually, could we make that Saw 10? Like they all have to get out of different uh, kitchen traps? So, Just go full theme. So fun fact, there is actually a terrible parody of Saw called Slaw. <laughs> go on. And it's so bad. I wanted to love it, but it's like full of like awful, like racist stereotype kind oh. of jokes. And, you know, like, and then, you know, just, you know, casual bigotry like in joke form where huh. it's just like it becomes offensive and you're just like ugh this is so bad like if they like if they had taken all of that out the humor in that film was really funny but it just like gets like marred by that terrible you know yeah it's always think- very sad in comedies when you can tell like somebody gave the script an uncle pass just throw in some of those uh some of those jokes it's- from the 80s Exactly. And that's what that feels like. Ugh, it's so bad. But I would say that, like, unlike Kramer, because Kramer, John Kramer wants everybody to escape the traps. Well, he you know, says that, but uh, he I also makes those traps pretty he, hard. He wants that. Wait, wait, just, hold on. You know. Hold on, hold on, though. No. John Kramer's traps are always pretty escapable. That's it's fair, a, yeah. It's Amanda and um, All the apprentices, Hoffman, Hoffman and, yeah. who make them basically inescapable. So I would say John Kramer wants people to be able to escape, but not unscathed. Whereas, I would say it was very unfair when he put the keys inside the tub and then the guy woke up and found out they were playing a game. Like, he didn't even have a chance to get the key before it got flushed. Look, Kramer just really hated that dude. 
But wait, you don't we find out? But wait, don't we find out like several movies later that that was actually Amanda? Yeah, she just so threw it, it in there. It was in, uh, I think it was a flashback in two. Yeah, she, or yeah, it, where she just kind of like threw it in there. Yeah, like so he it wasn't Kramer, it was Amanda again. But <laughs> why you never argue with Saucebirds. Those for those first three movies are tight. They make sense. <laughs> so I will say, I will say that I always tell people this when watching the Saw films, watch them back to back. Don't watch them like super paced out because they make a lot more sense when you watch them all together Yeah. versus like, you know, waiting like a month between them or something because then you forget every small detail that happened. I, I'm, I'm a very big fan of the Saw franchise. I, I love <laughs> Saw. It is it is one of my my franchises, and I apologize that my dog is going insane. My husband just went out to dinner with friends, and so if my dog is barking in the background, it's because she misses him. No, it adds so much. I just assumed she was <laughs> also the fan of Saw, and she wanted us to know. She's just like, oh, I need to talk about John Kramer. But, <laughs> but Slowick, on the other hand, had no intention of letting anyone leave. I don't think it mattered. And... I think that was where, you know, Margot's like, you know, dance with him through this whole thing was interesting because he didn't know what to do. Like that quest for perfection, his his menu has to go perfectly. This all has to go without, you know, any sort of incident because it's so tightly planned. And then there she is. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so I think I think like that's him realizing that like him letting her go was kind of like him also like going back to his roots where things didn't have to be so fine-tuned and perfect as long as they were you know good enough here's something amazing about that ending to me every person i've talked to has come away with a different interpretation of why he let her live and they're all equally valid statements so that's fantastic i love when the movie is able to provide just that little bit of ambiguity and enough character where you can think no that makes sense but this guy's explanation makes sense i hadn't heard yours before but i could definitely see it i also think like she she when she asked him for the cheeseburger that's like when he was probably the most passionate about cooking right yeah and so like that was like when he just cooked because he loved to cook and so he got to make this meal when she asked for that and not the fancy, not the, you know, Instagram worthy thing, like just a good cheeseburger. She gives him purity. Exactly. She's like, this is like, I want I want what I know you are passionate about, not what I think you should be passionate about or what's trendy, what's up and coming, you know? And so I think that he sees that in her, like he sees the appreciation of like what he does from her. And then especially when she says, like, can I get it to go? Meaning, like, that was delicious. Like, I'm not just going to leave waste on my plate and walk away. Mm -hmm. I think that also was like for him. He was like, yeah, OK, you can you can take this to go and I'm going to let you I'm going to let you go. Yeah. See, my my stance on it was the film kind of focuses uh, in my mind a lot about the question of authenticity, maybe in how your art is presented uh, or how you experience things, how you present yourself. Part of why Sloak is, is so frustrated by Margot is he doesn't understand who she really is. And then we find out later she's actually uh, an escort, and that's not her real name. And he's probably right to be a little suspicious of how she's not behaving how she's supposed to be behaving. Then at the end, we, we get this conflict where finally they can totally be their roles in an authentic way. He gets to be the giver, she gets to be the taker. 
And it's it's the idealized version of both of those transactions for him. You know, he gets to make a very good burger. He gets to make something he knows she will enjoy. He gets to watch her enjoy it. And she gets to say exactly what she wants and be very direct. And I, I think that was kind of it. It's, it's perfection right there for him, which he values. And having gotten a taste of that, he can let her go. She's also navigating him into the very base roles that he's clearly set up and he kind of rules his life by the idea of the the server and the the specific rules set up as to how a server is is meant to act and how a customer is meant to act so when she asked it to go it's like he's preordained to stay within that lane so he has to follow through the function that she has presented she asks it to go he cannot kill her because he has to be able to provide the food in a doggy bag to take home. And I love the different layers of that working simultaneously, where she's giving him this, he's able to go back into this realm, but also she's playing the game that's been kind of like presented. Because everyone's everyone in the film is playing these roles to like an absurd degree. But oh, yeah. what what's what's funny to me is they're not it's not a heightened reality of these roles the film's just like turning to you and going isn't it weird that we act this way yeah i mean i think what's interesting also though is that like he picks all of these people very for very specific reasons like they're all bad people for different you know reasons Mm -hmm. and he has to try to figure out like is like he has like a morality like level for himself like is Margot? bad like should i be killing her like maybe she's not one of you know maybe she's not one of them you know maybe she's one of us and maybe you know he's not gonna he's not gonna you know kill one of us who hasn't agreed to that moment and so i think that there that plays into it as well and he's trying to figure out And he he figures it out at the end when she clearly, when she can have anything she wants, says, I want, like, the basic cheeseburger. That's, like, his moment of, like, oh, she's, you know, she's not one of them. Because not one of them would have ordered a cheeseburger. (laughs) Right, as your last meal in the world's fanciest restaurant. But they do, they do allude to the ending very early in the film. And I don't know if anyone else picked up on it. I didn't pick up on it until the second time I saw it. Uh, Where they're doing the tour of the, kind of the barracks and they mentioned the idea of burning uh-huh yep <laughs> not many people pick that up like i i didn't pick it up the first hmm. time and then i saw it the second time and i was like oh, i see what they did there <laughs> i wasn't i wasn't guessing s'mores though so i was i was still taken aback <laughs> no one guesses s'mores i i am expecting when i go back to rewatch it that this is going to be like an infinitely rewatchable just picking up on every little little thing so well planned out so I feel I feel like a real dummy, but I couldn't figure out why Slowick bandages his hands uh, right before the Coast Guard agent comes in. Did it, did anyone else figure that out? Does someone know? Can they explain probably, it to me like I'm five? Be, probably because he just wanted it to appear normal, like everything was normal. And if you're a chef in a kitchen and you injure yourself, you don't walk around with open wounds. You bandage yourself. Yeah, but he hadn't cut his hand, had he? Yes. He had. Something had happened at that point, and I'm trying to remember what it is now. But something had happened to his hand. He did, like, cut himself or... 
So that, had, that would have totally explained. I just didn't remember he, him cutting he, his hand. So I was no, really scratching my head like, what's a bandage? Is it a twist? He did do something with him, but I can't remember what at that Why? Because that was after man's folly. Was it because he had blood on his hand from touching his, his leg wound? No, he did hurt him. He got his hand cut or stabbed or something. See, now I definitely have to watch it a now second I, time just so I can answer I this one question. I don't even remember, and I've seen it twice. I'm <laughs> oh, like, no. that's going to kill me. I'm like, wait, why? <laughs> why? The menu in theaters now. Watch it again and again to figure out the hand wrap mystery. Do you know that this is Searchlight's most, like, this is their best movie in terms of box office since Slumdog Millionaire? I saw wow. that. That's, oh, that's been so happy. And good for them. Uh, they, they've done, what, something like $15, $16 million opening weekend? Something like that, yeah. They did really well. I mean, go gastro horror. Yeah. Well, we're we're kind of in a good period for that, aren't we? I don't know how it oh, normally shakes out been, each year. but This has been a really big year for gastro horror. <laughs> so we've got, what, Bones and All, I think, comes out this week. We have. Um, there was I Fresh earlier in the year. So there, we I feel Fresh, like... um, The Banquet came out because i had a list of this. <laughs> so a banquet came out on shutter and it technically had like a tiff um debut in 2021 but it didn't get any like other release until this year mm-hmm. um then you had flux gourmet you have family dinner uh which is not out it's still on the festival circuit you have bones and all you had Peppergrass, which is still on the festival circuit you have Do Not Disturb, which is on the festival circuit. Um, you had Finga, um, which is another cannibalism, like fairy tale type movie, which is, um, that comes out, or that's still on the festival circuit. Frank and Penelope, which is another cannibalism movie, that, that's on VOD now. Um, Feed Me, which I think is on VOD now, which is another cannibal movie. I mean, there's a lot of cannibal movies this year. Yeah. Um, wow, eating Miss Campbell. Guessed. Eating Miss Campbell is a new trauma release, but it's still on the festival circuit. <laughs> and then, and then there is a one um, called Mad Heidi, which has uh, Casper Van Dien in it, oh. and it's about a dystopian Switzerland that's fallen under the rule of a fascist uh, evil cheese tyrant. <laughs> <laughs> and that I, is the greatest and, description and so, I've ever heard. And so then this. Innocent girl transforms herself into a kick-ass female fighting force set to, who sets out to liberate the country from the insane cheese fascists. And I am so excited for this movie. I, <laughs> literally, awesome. I literally pre-ordered a copy of it because I was so excited. <laughs> I would like to pretend that Mouse Hunt is a prequel to it. <laughs> I don't want my Minnesota friends finding out about this because they will just be calling everyone from Wisconsin cheese fascists. <laughs> <laughs> they can't know. I have to hide this movie from them for the rest of their lives. Uh... <laughs> also, can you imagine what it would be like to eat Casper Van Dien? <laughs> uh... I mean, I don't think no that comment. they're literally made of cheese. I think that they sell cheese or make cheese. This yeah. is not actually unrelated to the film. This is just <laughs> after Casper Van Dien. Like, I never thought of that before. Like, if I was to have a meal... Of a person, I think I'd want to choose Casper Van Dien. He's I don't know. Animal. He's not that like he's not that bulky. There's not a lot of meat on those bones. Like 
I mean, I, I think, and his age, like he's not old, but he's not young. So I think I, if I'm going to eat somebody, I want someone who's got a little bit more meat on their bones and the flesh is a little bit younger. This all checks out. I would totally agree. Like, I'm just going by like how we like, you know, like farm cattle and stuff. Like nobody's eating like 10 year old like steer. <laughs> the centerpiece his chin would make though. <laughs> <laughs> So to, to go back through your list, I haven't seen most of these since they're still on the, the festival circuit, but you mentioned Flux Gourmet, which I did check out the other day, and I was kind of surprised because Shudder put that one out, but I don't know if I would call it horror. I, you know what? Even the genre tags on this call it horror. Like, even IMDb and Letterboxd both call it horror, and I absolutely agree. I don't think it's horror at all. Like, yeah. I, there is, I think they assume just because there's like a little bit of grossness that you can call it horror, and <laughs> I disagree. Like, like body horror in the farthest, farthest sense, I guess. Like, I, I was not really a huge fan of Flux Gourmet. I really wanted to love it, and I was really excited for it. Yep. But it just was a little bit too style over substance for me. I would, yeah, totally same page. But that that does bring me back to the menu, and. Right before I saw the movie, like the last tweet I read was someone saying, is this actually a horror movie or is this a thriller? And then watching it the entire time, I just had that argument with myself, like, would you call this a horror movie or would this just be like a dark comedy, a thriller? I mean, it's all semantics, but it, it made me wonder. So I would say that it is like horror light because like I know from just like my personal experience, like I know like I have friends who can handle thrillers but can't handle horror. Mm -hmm. And this is definitely one of those movies where I would probably tell them that they could probably handle it, but I know that they would be probably pretty bothered by, like, the ending. I think the ending is what takes it out of the solely thriller, yeah. you know, moment when he's, you know, kind of doing right. the whole Midsummer-esque, <laughs> you know... When the cult all emulates themselves, yeah. Yeah, like, I think that's where, like, I think it's, like, the, like, third act is really where it hits horror versus just, like, dark comedy thriller. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I, I had a college class just watching classic horror films, and the professor made us have philosophical arguments about, is it horror or not? And he came down the side that it has to have a monster. Like, there has to be some sort of supernatural <laughs> oh, yeah. Aspect of the film for it to to cross over from thriller into horror, which is why he wasn't entirely sure if Halloween counted as a horror film because they're they're <laughs> ambiguous uh. about Michael Myers in the first film. Oh my goodness! So I don't want to go into that argument because it's silly, but I, it makes me wonder. And that's a really really good point that that third act, the tone kind of gets heightened and it becomes it's not presented unrealistically, but the events that are happening are. are over the top enough where you could say, yes, this doesn't really belong in thriller territory anymore. I never really thought about that. That's a, that's an interesting way to kind of define where the genre stops. Well, if you just like tweak the tone of dialogue, it becomes very unrelenting horror. Like it, it, you can make that into a very like somber, stark horror film. that's almost depressing by just like altering the tone of the dialogue. Just, just that's a slight change, but it's, it's, the absurdity of the fact that everyone's acting this way, but it's a horror movie. Right. Well, in the comedy, I really appreciated all the, the little jokes and humor that's throughout the movie. I, I think that helps prevent any sort of criticism that the, the movie is too pretentious for its own good. When it has the ability to laugh at itself and its own events, you know they're in on the joke, and that really helps things go down. Yeah, I was just thinking about other moments in the movie that would make the guy cutting the guy's finger off. 
Oh, or yeah. making like yeah, the guy's finger getting cut off. That's kind of more horror territory than thriller. And I guess expectation wise, I kind of forget those moments because I was expecting this to be kind of a bloodbath the entire way through. But it's fairly limited on gore. We have one person stabbed in the throat, uh, one finger severed. Uh, there is a suicide by gun, and then obviously everyone gets immolated at the end. But wait, who gets their throat cut? Uh, at the end, the the hostess, uh, when they're oh, struggling right. inside yeah. of Slowick's house, yeah, and she, then she and then Tyler that. hangs himself, which is pretty horrific. Right. See, I thought that was really clever misdirection because he gets up and he leaves. We don't know exactly what he's going to be doing, and then the next time they show him, we see him hanging, but they have his face kind of darkened. So, you, in classic yeah. like movie nerd sense, you go, "Ah, I'm not truly seeing his body, and he died off camera." It's part of a larger twist, like it was going to become <laughs> April Fool's Day at the end, you know? Uh, and then you find out, no, he just killed himself. That was just his body hanging in the dark. I think the movie actively <laughs> toys with viewers like that, right? They they kind of lay out things you would assume Very would be much. a twist, and then they go. No, that's not really a twist. You're overthinking. Yeah, like like how Sloak's mother's just like sitting in the corner. Right. And you're like, that's gotta be something bigger. Like it's yeah. gotta be something bigger. There there's so many parts too where those little nods you think, oh, he's setting something up. Like for a while I thought that uh uh Anna Taylor Joy's character was was gonna be revealed to be one of the actors in on this whole thing and they were doing dinner theater. Like when he's <laughs> interrogating her and asking, Who are you? I thought like, oh, this could be dialogue basically saying, like, you're playing your role very poorly. It could be interpreted as him grilling her because she's not doing your character right. And, of course, way overthinking it. Just putting way too much thought <laughs> on what's happening. I was, I was being a Tyler in that moment. <laughs> oh, my husband's been walking around the house constantly saying to me, is that bergamot? I think that's bergamot. <laughs> <laughs> and it didn't help that we did a recipe for the menu with where it was wild bergamot and red clover tea. And so the whole time we were shooting this recipe, my husband just was on me. He was, oh, is that bergamot? I think it's bergamot. <laughs> I taste a little bergamot. And I'm like, mm. uh, What's your take on why Slowick brought Tyler in? Like why he like had opened up communication with him in the first place? Because he's an influencer. And influencers are the root of all evil in the restaurant in <laughs> That like, would explain, I, like, the, the emphasis on him think, constantly taking the pictures, and that's yeah. why it's on the the, uh, the tortillas. That's that's why, like, I think it is. I think Tyler was there because he did not, like, they make a whole point, like, when he goes and talks to the sous chef, and he's like, oh, the sous chef knows my name, the sous chef knows my name, whoa, I'm so cool. And then Anya Taylor-Joy's like, you didn't even ask him his name. Right. You're so, you're so impressed by what this, you know, guy is doing, but you didn't even ask his name. Or as as things get more and more unhinged, he's only focused on just eating the food that's in front of him. Like, he doesn't care if someone lost a finger or if, if someone shot themselves. He knows they're all going to die. He doesn't care. He's just there exclusively for the food. And then he's, like, calling her a child and snapping at her. Ugh. That, that reminded me so much of the beginning of Fresh when the the guy on the date makes her pay oh. and then takes her leftovers. <laughs> right, yeah. Oh my god, when I watched that, I'm not even shitting you. I was so angry. I was like, I was like, what kind of asshole does that? If some guy tried to take my leftovers on a date, I would stab him with a fork. You would have and it coming. I would, no jury would convict. Yeah, I would I would literally just be like, oh no, that's not what's happening. Stab. <laughs> and then I would walk out. Like, no. And it kind of reminded me of that. I was like, oh, where's his where's his scarf? <laughs> like <laughs> Oh boy. Oh, 
and, and well, fun, it, it's it's funny to me because they they have Tyler, the most I don't know, probably obnoxious guy amongst the crew, filled with obnoxious characters. But he, he's played by Nicholas Holt, who is fairly charismatic. Like I normally see him and stuff and go, oh, cool, that guy's around. And this one, he gets to turn that and be <laughs> just a complete d bag. He was really good, and I don't know, it's uh, totally unrelated, but if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend Tolkien. Yeah. He, there, he, uh, in 2019, they did a movie about Tolkien. Yeah, I totally um, forgot about that one. And he plays Tolkien. And it was a really great movie. Like, I, I don't think it gets talked about enough, but I think it's definitely, you know, one that is worth seeing. Yeah. No, the note, well, that, that was a movie that just seemed to pop up out of nowhere and then immediately vanish. Yeah. Like, I think I, I, I saw think one single ad for it, and that was it. It was definitely one of those uh, movies where you have a very specific audience in mind for it. And I think that they just, you know, kept it to a minimum, didn't waste a lot of money on marketing because they knew that it was for that very specific crowd. I would be terrified to make anything aimed at Tolkien fans. Their their attention to detail is so exacting. It's like, there's no way I'm going to nail this. Oh, I, I did. We did um, a recipe for Tolkien toast for that movie. And I, you know what? I will say that I was pretty impressed with it because I did, I did a lot of research for that <laughs> because I was not about to become. Um, and there's also like, if I don't know if you know, but on his birthday, you at 9 p.m. on his birthday, you, which is, I think, January 3rd, you raise a glass at 9 p.m. and say, uh, the professor, which is how you toast Tolkien on his birthday. But we also did mushroom toast because um, he said in a quote that he liked good plain food, detested French cooking, um, <laughs> but he loved mushrooms. And so though our recipe was slightly French-ish because we did use butter and thyme, but we also used dry sherry. So it wasn't quite so, so French forward, but so but yes. what, what an anglophile he was, I assume it'd just be like a bunch of beans and toast. <laughs> beans and toast is delicious. I don't have a problem with it. We oh. talk about beans on this podcast way too much. That's true. But man, we have to admit, what a great source of fiber. Beans are delicious. It's it's really unfortunate that they do what they do because nobody <laughs> wants to nobody wants to talk about how delicious they are for that reason. But I I will die on the hill that lima beans are the shit. I like lima, lima beans. beans lima delightful. beans are delicious. I, I will eat nothing but lima beans every day. Lima beans might be the most underrated foods on the planet. I would say it is definitely at least the most underrated vegetable. I, I definitely think lima beans are a A-OK veggie. Cody, if you're if you're planning Man. to say anything over there about lima beans, you ate candy corn brats. No, so. I have nothing bad to say about lima beans. One, I was just really impressed that everyone was so enthusiastic about them. I didn't know that was such like a we a all cool bonded subject. over lima beans. Man, we should have been hashtagging those in all of our Twitter posts. We'd have like thirty thousand new followers. Hashtag lima bean love. <laughs> I just I got caught thinking of vegetables. You mentioned like most underrated one. I'm like, oh man, but Brussels sprouts are right there. Brussels sprouts. Brussels sprouts Jamie, are great. Jamie and I had a very long conversation about Brussels sprouts the other night. I rediscovered them this week. I'm very excited. I grew up hating them because my mother we we were not we were not a very wealthy family growing up, but my mother always bought frozen vegetables. Like mm. she didn't like canned. And we couldn't always like afford fresh or she didn't cook fresh. I don't know. But we always had frozen vegetables. And so she'd always serve like, you know, cooked 
Brussels sprouts, but they were basically like defrosted fro- from frozen Brussels sprouts. <laughs> and it was like, they were like little wet balls of like, you know, fart smell because that's <laughs> basically what Brussels sprouts smell like. And then when I was older, I discovered roasted Brussels sprouts. Like when you cook them in the oven and they get that nice char on. Oh, that now I love Brussels sprouts. But growing up, I was convinced that they were like the devil. (laughs) That was the moment I knew I had become an old person when I went to a restaurant. saw they had Brussels sprouts (laughs) on like the appetizer menu. I'm like, hell yes. Oh, it's a good fucking day. Brussels sprout time. I can't wait to order a glass of water with this. <laughs> <laughs> There's a restaurant near me that has Kung Pao Brussels sprouts on the appetizer oh, menu. Man. And I, I've gotten very close to being able to recreate them. But still, I, I, it, there's something else in there that I have not been able to pin. I would also argue, speaking of underrated vegetables, though, that cauliflower is yes. drastically underrated. Like cauliflower is so good. In so many ways, it's it's almost for me almost as good as potatoes. Yes, uh, Matt, I love mashed cauliflower. Honestly, fried cauliflower. Yes, cauliflower seems to pair with a lot more dishes than I think broccoli would. Like there are very specific foods I want to eat with broccoli. Cauliflower kind of goes with everything. It's like cod; you can do anything with it. Yeah, I we we grill cauliflower a lot. Like we have like a grill basket and so we'll like toss it with like some olive oil and some fresh herbs and salt and then just throw it on the grill and it's so good. So so good. I had cold sweet potatoes today. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could have warmed them up. I it was totally my choice. Uh, I didn't have to do any of this. <laughs> No. You just put on Hurt by Johnny Cash and just had to die. <laughs> I will say that next time, if you want good pumpkin beer brats, go go look at my website and go get the recipe because we have we have a recipe for like beer brats, and so you use pumpkin beer and then cook them that way. Now and we're that's talking. Delicious. Yeah, that sounds fire. I, I would do that. That's that's probably way better than having a brat that has pumpkin spice already put into it. <laughs> Before, like, the Jenny Street Market come to beat me up. Uh, <laughs> not not as bad as I thought they are going to be, honestly. <laughs> I mean, all Please pumpkin spice Please don't sue me, is, Jenny Street Market. I mean, I, I don't understand the, like, the big deal. All pumpkin spice is is, like, literally, like, cinnamon, nutmeg, and, like, allspice. It's, yeah. it's things that we all regularly eat. So it's just all put together. You want to talk about food snobbery? The way I, the look I've gotten over the years whenever I'm eating something that's pumpkin spice and people go, oh, you're one of those people. Motherfucker, it's a flavor. But Jamie, you're doing pumpkin spice mayo. (laughs) (laughs) I think the only thing pumpkin spice that I don't really like is pumpkin spice lattes from Starbucks. And that's because Mm -hmm. they're too sweet. Like, if they did, like, a sugar-free version, I would be all about that. But they, like, they put, like, five pumps of, like, full sugar (laughs) pumpkin syrup. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. I drink my coffee black. So, like, for me, that's a lot. Like, that's just, like, going way too far. I usually just buy, like, those, like, uh, Jordan's skinny syrups, which are, like, the zero-calorie, sugar-free, blah, blah, you know. But they have good pumpkin flavors. And so I usually just buy those. and pour a little bit like i usually do about a teaspoon a tablespoon of my cup of coffee depending on how big my cup is that day 
and that's that's it like then you get the like the pumpkin spice flavor but it's not like cloying they truly are ruining the art I, 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 do, I do. I only drink black coffee myself. And now that I have a pour over, I put a little bit of pumpkin spice in the coffee grounds yes. for the pour over. And it's, ah. Oh, you know, if you, if you don't like acid in your coffee, like if you have problems with acid, put a little pinch of salt into your yes, coffee. Yes, yes. I see like a tiny bit of sea salt on top, too. To, to it it helps. It neutralizes the acidity of your coffee and helps to balance it out a little bit. Yeah, it's very if smooth. If you have a particularly acidic coffee. Yeah, that's 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 like what my co- that's all I've got for coffee is cinnamon and <laughs> cinnamon and salt like Sarah and I are just going to talk about coffee now for an hour and a half. Oh, boy. I also I also drink tea. I mean, <laughs> I, I I'm a I'm I have tea in front of me. I, I'm, an, I'm an equal opportunity caffeinator like like I like both. <laughs> uh, before we get Mike going on about tea or coffee for another uh, hour, we are getting pretty close to time, so Is I think let's transition into a wrap-up question here. With it uh, coming up on Thanksgiving, Sarah, is there a gastro horror movie you would recommend for the holiday? Hell yes. <laughs> I got you. Pilgrim is my Thanksgiving movie. Like, I watch Pilgrim every year on Thanksgiving. It is so good. You have death by food. You've got cannibalism. You've got an actual thanksgiving meal like it's it's not just a horror movie that takes place like around thanksgiving it's like an actual thanksgiving horror movie and it's on hulu so it's easy to stream it's one of the blumhouse into the dark movies okay and i definitely definitely recommend that one if you're looking for something a little bit more like cheesy slasher i recommend blood rage my my folks were looking for a movie to go see uh, since the whole family is going to be together. Uh, we were leaning towards Glass Onion, but uh, maybe I'll switch it around. We'll see how they deal with this. <laughs> I mean, it depends on how your folks. Uh... <laughs> no, I'm, I'm pretty sure they'd hate it. So I'll just watch this on my own time. But... It would definitely be a conversation oh. piece for you. That's true. Yeah, yeah you never know. That my might folks work out love better. the interview, so sometimes they like things you wouldn't expect them to like. Mm. <laughs> But I, I think that does it for time. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. I'm, I'm so excited to talk about the menu with people. So this is a real treat for me. See, got one more food put in. Yes. Shut up, Cody. <laughs> oh, man. I'm almost done. I swear, Mike. <laughs> Somebody better me. I'm in a row. Oh, Jamie. Nice. Ah, fantastic. Uh, if you want to get more box office pulp, you can find us uh, as long as Twitter's still around at box office pulp. Uh, or wherever podcasts are found. Sarah, where's the best place to find your works? Oh, Twitter is probably it right now, but um, <laughs> I, I'm on Letterboxd. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, everywhere. Final Girls Feast, Spooky Sarah says. It's like, I keep it easy. It's the same like username for everything, Geeks Who Eat, same everywhere. So if you're looking for those, you know, we're that way all over the web. Nice. Oh, man, I'm starving for real food now so i <laughs> i'm gonna hang up and go find something that isn't uh a sausage it's gonna be awesome it's beans Thanks and so much. sprouts more yeah that's it i got a bunch of bushes baked beans in the cabinet <laughs> just gonna why, don't you, on why don't you throw some candy corn in there <laughs> please don't uh I, th- I don't think i have any leftovers mike unfortunately i'll have to do like um fun size snickers or uh butterfingers Oh, I'm imagining that melting over beans, and I'm very <laughs> sad and disgusted and kind of want to throw up. That's the perfect note to end the show on. Thanks so much for listening. 
That's a wrap. And like that, he's gone. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.